but I always combined, you know, heavy lifting with with, with the jumping, you know. So, so you know, I use jumping as a potentiation for lifting, and then lifting as a potentiation for jumping. So mm-hmm. we usually start with horizontal jumping and coordination, and then we go into the gym and do a bit of lifting, and we come out to do more vertical stuff. You know, we always I follow follow that uh, that setup. That was Swedish sprint coach Håkan Andersson talking about the importance of not utilizing max strength lifting in isolation and then integrating plyometrics into the training scheme. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 79 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and we have an amazing speed training episode today with none other than coach Hawken Anderson. Hawken is a Swedish sprint coach. He has over 30 years of experience and he trains some high level athletes up there in, I guess what we could call the far north. <laughs> He's been the personal coach for many successful track and field sprinters. Uh, He also has involvement in speed and power training in other sports such as swimming, boxing, and he's consulted with many professional organizations. I I think something to look at uh, with Hawken and the results that he's got, and he's got a lot of guys in that low, low 10-second club, and this is done in a place with not a lot of sunlight and sunshine. And if you look at where the good sprinters or the good places to train even really are, it's, it's places with a lot of sunlight. It's the reason that in the United States, it's, it's California, it's Florida, it's Texas that has the fastest athletes. And sunshine is a really important factor. I think Hank Kreienhoff has said it, 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 he's got like the three or four T's of of uh, what it takes to have a good sprinter and temperature is one and and Hawken is a creative and knowledgeable coach who has kind of defied those odds and led athletes to really fast times in, in spite of that um, that temperature difference and he's he's had people such as Peter Carlson uh, going from 1170 in the 100 meters and then over a period of years getting him down to 1018. 
Uh, which he recently spoke about actually on World Speed Summit 4, uh, which was a really cool talk. And and you know that something special is happening in those training groups. And Hawkeye is a coach that I've actually had requested to have on the show. And and when you see the results and the things that he's done and and the results he's achieved, you can certainly see why. And, and so he's definitely top of the line in terms of combining knowledge of speed and power research into good practice. And on this episode in particular, we're going to be talking about a spectrum of speed t- training topics. And uh, I started off really with a lot of stuff that I think blends both of the worlds. If you're a strength coach listening to the show, a track coach, uh, we're going to talk a lot about different uh, strength modalities and where do they fit in the, the speed training puzzle. We're going to talk about speed biomechanics. We're going to talk about what Hawken looks for in the phases of sprinting. And then after that, we're going to get a little bit into more of the special strength, assisted sprinting, resisted sprinting. We're going to talk a little bit about Hawkins' training setup, uh, what his GPP looks like, his SPP. And I always love talking nuts and bolts with coaches. How do they put it all together? I think there's just so many interesting things that you could find in the art form of what it actually comes down to training athletes, putting the workouts on paper, and then implementing them. So lots of just speed training gold in this episode with Hawken Anderson, Swedish sprint coach. Let's get on to the show. Hawken, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Thanks, Joel. Uh, you're doing a great job, and it's, it's an absolute honor to be to be considered. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really excited to have you. Uh, and the, for those people who might not be familiar with some of your work up there in Sweden, uh, which I, I, uh, I definitely share that a little bit of a familiarity with, at least in terms of my uh, some of my uh, my genetic makeup and lineage. Uh, what's your background in the field? Like, uh, what are you doing right now, and and how did you get there? Well, I, I was an athlete myself in in the seventies, and I don't really know who I got in, into coaching. But I've been a coach for you know thirty five years or something, and it's uh, always just been sprinting. And I've been in and out of the national team, but I always had a, a small group of, 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 you know, serious guys, you know, training with me in Sundsvall. And at the moment, I have a group of about six guys. You know, one one guy is uh, traveling back and forth from Stockholm, but it's a small group. And I, I uh, at the moment, I don't have any, any. I'm not involved with the track, you know, with the national team, and but I work on a, with my group and. So I've been involved in track and field for most of my life. You know, it's um, it's been an interesting journey. But I've never been a you know professional coach. Uh, this has been my hobby and passion. You know, I I'm a trained engineer, but I've been been working with uh, you know the local fire brigade. I'm a captain in the fire brigade. I've been doing that for 36 years, and this is actually my last month coming up. I'm retiring in the beginning of, of 2018. Here. Oh wow! Well, so c- congrats. Thanks a lot. So they're going to be going to be professional coach, you know, funded by the state, I guess. In 2018. I, I guess. Well, hey, that's awesome. Too. Hey, that's that's something special. Congrats on that. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, hey, so uh, first question or official question is kind of what I think a lot of people argue about or, or maybe misconstrue or I, I think there's a lot of opinions, but just the basic uh, horizontal and vertical forces in sprinting. Uh, what's your take and how does that work into how you look at sprinters' mechanics? Well, you know, I, I had a nice talk to, you know, Professor Moran. I was at the hamstring project in Barcelona a month ago and he's a 
nice and humble guy and uh, you know he doesn't uh, you know laugh about the matter you know but you know he, the conclusion was that there's no argument at least not in, in the scientific community and and if you believe in the laws of newton you know it's hard to understand why it is a discussion you know that uh, when a horizontal force vector is absolutely crucial to create acceleration you know but if you don't want to to land flat on your face you have to be able to produce vertical forces as well you know from step one and the, the longer interaction, the greater need to, to produce, you know, mass-specific forces vertically, you know, and you know, and a very short period of time, you know, so it's, it's you know, it's very, uh, it's hard to know why it's such a debate about it because you need both, of course. So. And uh, I see, you know, you know, actually, you, you don't jump from a plane into max speed. You have to take yourself up to maximum velocity, you know, and. Uh, and uh, I see, you know, three distinct phases of the acceleration. I usually, you know, apart from the block phase, you know, the, I see a phase, you know, phase one, you know, when you have great uh, horizontal propulsive forces, you know, that uh, you have great trunk lean and you have a negative shin angle. And, and it lasts, you know, for, you know, depend on the person how hip dominant they are, you know, for some guys you see, you know, phase one up to maybe 12 steps, you know, 20 meters, you know, and. If you have a you know negative shin angle, you know you have a great trunk lean. You can you know not only the prime move, not only the hip extensor or prime move, we can also use your extensors of the knee, you know, extensively, you know, and produce a lot of, of horizontal force, you know. So um, and f phase two, I, I, I you know I, I consider is when when uh, the the shin angle are or, you know, vertically, you know, but you still have a leaning torso, you know, and at that point, you can only produce horizontal forces with, with your hip extensors, you know. And uh, then you have phase three, you know, that is up to max velocity. Max velocity, it varies a lot, you know, and, and uh, you know, we know Usain Bolt, he had an acceleration up to, you know, close to seven seconds, around six to seven meters, I think. But you have people that reach their top speed already at uh, 20, 25 meters, you know, it's, it depends, you know, on your capacity, how fast you are, you know, and, and also your, your technique, you know, but in phase one, you have, a, you have an erect body position, you have a high hip, and uh, if you don't want to produce a horizontal force, you know, you have to, it has to be done by, you know, by the hip extensors, and the forces are not in horizontal way are not uh, great, you know, they're, but they're significant. And uh, you still have to produce, uh, you know, if you want to keep an acceleration, you have to have more propulsive than braking force. And, and uh, you have, but you also have to realize that from step one, you know, the, uh, there is a gradu you know, gradually greater vertical reactive elastic force production that, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, that peaks at max velocity. So I, I don't think... Uh, both are needed, but you also have to consider different types of sprinters. You know, there are people like, you know, Justin Gatlin, uh, you know, that has a, you know, you, you know, he's very, very hip dominant. You know, he has a fairly long uh, ground contact, a little shorter, you know, flight phase, you know. And well, then you have people like, you know, Kim Collins and others that can, you know, that pushes a lot, you know, the acceleration with the knee extensor. So it, uh, uh, it's individual based, you know, but everyone needs both the horizontal and vertical force for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess, uh, obviously there's definitely, um, there'd be no debate in, in like the starting or phase one. I think, uh, the question that may, some more people, at least what I've, uh, considered that I think people talk about is more in the top end speed. 
and how a lot of people would say, oh, it's, it's all, you know, it's all about the vertical force at top end speed. Uh, but would you say uh, that the type you were saying, like the type of sprinter really is going to impact how much each of those is a contributor once an athlete is up and running at their top end? But at, at, at the point of maximum velocity, where you have no acceleration and you have no deceleration, then of course the vertical forces are, are more important, you know. But as as long as you're accelerating, you know, you have to produce a, a net impulse that you know propulsively is greater than the, the than the braking. You know, it's a, yes, it's a Newton's law, you know. It's, so. Uh, and, but it also, I think, I think it has a little bit to do with it, with the type of, of sprinters. If you were to, I don't know if Gatlin has been in, in you know, in in the, in the SMU lab yet, you know. But I think you would see a different force production characteristic of him than you know some of the other sprinters have tested him. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Uh, and so talking about like different types of sprinters as well, I, I want to talk a lot about. Uh, strength and plyometrics and all the special means. And what's your take on how you would approach sprinters who might respond optimally uh, to a particular type of strength? So uh, using weightlifting or plyometrics, uh, do, you, do, you try, do you try to improve what that athlete is weak at or do you just kind of stick with what their natural strengths are over time? Well, in terms of, I think in terms of maximum strength, and I feel, you know, at least in Europe, you know, and I'm sure in other communities too, I think maximum strength training has been overemphasized, you know, for a, for a long period of time, you know. And even for some sprinters that we do respond, know respond well to heavy weightlifting, it's a definite a diminishing return, you know, in terms of maximum strength development and transferring to, to maximum speed, you know. But for beginners, it's a, it's a different story, though. You know, they they can respond to almost anything. You know, but I think you have to be, you know, careful. You know, and uh, I think a lot. Of, you know, strength gain, strength strength gains itself is not the problem. It's not the problem to be strong. You know, but the problem is that it's very easy to gain muscle mass. You know, and and uh, you know it can be counterproductive. You know, because it's the mass specific forces are like uh, way and is telling you know us that. Uh, that counts at maximum velocity, and and in my experience too, you know that uh, you know f- too frequent heavy lifting, you know, it interferes with technical development, you know, and it, uh, also with the, the ability to relax, you know, it has a place, you know, but uh, uh, it's very easy to to overdo it, you know, and if and if you think about you know you know muscle tissue development, you know, I think you have to. You have to make sure that uh, we were talking about this a long time ago with my friend Carmelo Bosco. You have to make sure that it's selective hypertrophy fibers. You know that, uh, especially for people who are not so genetically gifted. You know, if you want to have uh, you know muscle growth, you make make sure it's fast tissue. You know, and uh, it's a very interesting study. I don't know if you read about that, uh, but Werner Günther. You know, they did a case study. And I think it was published in. In Journal of Sports Medicine around 2003, I don't remember the name of the author, you know, but Werner Günther was a three-time world record holder in the, in the world, world champion in the shot put, you know, and the super explosive, you know, but he didn't have such great number of fastest fibers, but his fast fibers was huge, you know, he had uh, over 10,000 micro square meters, you know, of fibers, you know, that. Uh, that made his, you know, you can call it maybe the functional area of the muscle tissue more fast and slow, you know. 
And uh, yeah, I think this has to be considered, especially with, with you know people are not so genetically gifted. You know, have to take it, take your time. You know, and uh, don't rush on muscle mass. You know, and uh, uh, follow up to make sure you have a transfer. You know, instead of just looking at the number in in the in the gym. You know, but uh, most most sprinters they are strong. You know, naturally strong, and they they, they uh, develop strength well. And but they also a lot of them put on muscle mass very easily. And you have to be careful with that, I think. Yeah, yeah. At what point do you start kind of getting away from from that maximal strength work? Are, on some of your higher level sprinters or the ones who have progressed quite far, is there a point where you just get away from that completely, or do you keep it in to kind of for potentiation throughout their throughout their later stages of training? Well, I, I, you always keep it there, but you know, we always keep the you know the you know the the reps very low. You know, we, we look at it as more neural and it's like, you know, potentiation is great, you know, but, uh, and also you always follow up, you know, see that if you, I mean, you hope for a transfer to a sprinting, right? But if you can't even see a transfer from maximum strength to jumping, you know, then, then uh, you're on thin ice, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and, um, there are other methods too, you know, like, you know, before we started, you know, you started putting us on air and we talked about eccentric overload, you know, with, with flywheel, you know, it, I think it's a very interesting concept, you know, that uh, we, we need to learn more about, you know, that, uh, you know, research shows that, you know, lengthening of fascicles, you know, and lengthening of fascicles, it means, you know, increase contraction velocity, you know, not not necessarily is the case with hypertrophy, you know. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, perhaps, you know, jumping or sprinting already maximize the length of the fascicles, you know. They, they can't be, there's a, there's a limit to that too, of course, you know. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, yeah, fascicle length, I've, I've always read about how that's important, and that's, that's always been a, a kind of a big area of interest for me that you, you see those structural gains out of the eccentric training, but then you also read how that strength, at least with the barbell, I, I, I know, I don't know about the flywheel. I think the flywheel is a lot different, but at least with the barbell, that strength is very specific to, uh, to, to that type of lift. So, uh, and I, I'm just interested cause it's some, not something I've really tried the, the eccentric, I mean, outside the flywheel, at least that heavy eccentric type work. And versus like a faster, like a flywheel or even plyometrics, obviously, which is eccentric too. I mean, but yes, jumping from a from a little stool, you know, it's a great uh, eccentric work uh, work at, at impact, you know. So you you you're definitely doing it, you know, even if you don't use uh, you know advanced machines. Yeah, jumping. Yeah, jumping is eccentric, yeah. but just a little bit more specific for for yeah. the vast majority of people. Uh, yeah, but yes, yeah, it's, it's a great impact. But in general, I, I feel you know, like if you talk about you know maximum strength, you know, and I, I really you know like the trend of the the more lighter frame, more elastic type of sprinters, and I love to watch it. The funny character grass sprint, you know, and uh, they have other qualities and maximum strength. That's for sure. You know, it's um, nice to see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... So uh, with the, with some of the sprinters too, uh, well, I was going to ask you as well, it, and I thought it was interested interesting that you mentioned this, but the idea that if you do um, the heavy weight training 
uh, too often, it, it really cuts into an athlete's technique. And I was having this discussion with a few coaches within the last couple of months of the idea that uh, even like like American football players or team sport athletes who who lift too heavy too often, like they, it's almost like their their degrees of learning are restricted. Like they're not quite as adaptable on the field. And I, I remember reading about all the, the Soviet-type uh, research where they, they wouldn't do like a maximal strength block and a, and a technique block in the same, in the same cycle because the lifting would mess up the technique. And I, always, I, I think that is a really interesting idea, like that interplay. I thought that was interesting that you mentioned it. Like if you do it too often, it, it impacts uh, their running form. And it definitely, you know, and especially maximum velocity. You can, it's easy to combine maximum weight with, you know, if you're working on initial acceleration, on, you know, play, jumping development and so. But as soon as you work with, you know, uh, higher speeds, you know, when when uh, and where it's, you know, then it, it it messes up, you know, and it's also taxing, you know, for the. For the muscle tissue and the nervous system, you know, so it's um, it's it's, um, it's demanding way of training, and it, it definitely I feel it interferes, you know. So we do it, but we don't do it with very great volumes, you know. But it's interesting to see, and I I totally agree with you know Charlie Francis was talking about this in the in the early or in the nineties, you know, how how this seems to be a transfer from sprinting to lifting, you know. And I have some guys that they're live very very little but they in you know immensely strong if i try them to you know test them in the you know with cleans you know guys are you know weigh 65 kilo can you know clean 122.5 you know it's uh, strong guys you know but we do a very little so i, I think it has to, there must be some transfer you know it's a you develop the nervous system with sprinting and jumping and it has you know it's the same it benefits the, the the lifting as well, you know. And uh, it's interesting to see too. You talk about the Russians, you know. Russian, uh, you know, weightlifter used to do a lot of plyometrics and you know even sprinting. You know, I don't know if they still do it, you know. But um, it seemed to have been a, a a part of the training, you know. Even though it's not a lot of stretch shortening and uh, in lifting, but it's uh, definitely a, a need of a great neural drive. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, when you uh, when you do when you do uh, include like the heavier strength training in for your group, uh, do you kind of cycle that in and out? Like how many how much of the year are they the the people that are doing the heavier lifting? Like how often is that in the program? And and how you said you don't do it very often, or how much is that spaced out? We do. You know, we usually do it in in the general prep preparation. You know, for six to eight weeks. You know, lift a little heavier. You know, maybe twice a week. But I always combine, you know, heavy lifting with with, with the jumping, you know. So, uh, you know, I, I use jumping as a potentiation for lifting, and then lifting as a potentiation for jumping. So mm-hmm. we usually start with horizontal jumping and coordination, and then we go into the gym and do a bit of lifting, and we come out to do more vertical stuff. You know, we always I follow follow that uh, that setup, and I, I, something has seems to work fairly well. Yeah. Yeah. I think I heard you talk about that. At, I believe it was World Speed Summit. But that was something I thought was it was like a sandwich is really it was really interesting. And I've heard coaches talk about that. But I, I feel like that practice isn't as commonplace as it should be. Like a lot of times athletes will sprint and then they go lift weights and then they go home. <laughs> and uh, I, I like that you you, kind of, you sandwich that heavy lifting stimulus with elastic work. 
And I, and I, I, I really believe in climatics and jumping, but it, you have to be, you know, considered to, it's not for everyone, you know, it's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, I found on an individual level, it's a, it's a high correlation between certain jumps and sprinting performance, but maybe not on a group level or on a, or on a population level, you know, much greater than, you know, correlation between maximum strength and sprinting, you know, but uh, everyone is not designed for jumping, you know, they have very little experience from childhood or they, maybe they, they, uh, weigh a little bit too much you know and uh, you know for, for 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 it to be healthy you know so it's a very just as maximum lifting is a very potent way of training so is plyometrics you know and uh, you have to take it uh, in into consideration who it's not for everyone and it's like Henk Reinhoff says is you know jumping is for for cats it's not for cows and yeah. <laughs> it's a nice expression expression yeah i was actually just i was just thinking that exact same thing as you were as you were uh that exact same quote was kind of just going through my head there as you as you were mentioning that and so uh with the different types then so you would have some uh in terms of the special strength and supporting uh would you do like more weightlifting with some and then more plyometrics with others or, or olympic lifts with some people is there different is there a different distribution that you tend to use for individual athletes? Uh, definitely. And I had one guy I trained in the night is Peter Carlson. He's still a world record holder. I said world rest. He's a Swedish national record holder, holder in 100 meters around 10, 1018 and 998. You know, he started uh, sprinting fairly late. Uh, he didn't have a, you know, didn't do much plyometrics when he was a teenager. So, you know, he started to be serious about sprinting when he was 20 plus, you know. And he didn't have the coordination for horizontal jumping. He could do a little bit of, of vertical jumping, hurdle jumping like that, but uh, uh, he didn't do a lot of that, you know. But uh, you have to also have to respect that, you know, sprinting is a plyometric activity as well, you know. So, uh, but the overload you get when you jump a little higher, it's uh, has a, you know, has some merits, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. That was, that was interesting that you mentioned, uh, you said Carlson was was not very coordinated at the horizontal uh, jumping. It reminds me a little bit about uh, spring coach uh, Chris Corfus, and I think it was an earlier episode of the podcast I did with him. He was talking about how a really high-level Caribbean sprinter, um, I believe was a sub-10 guy, just couldn't bound to save his life. <laughs> and oh. I, I think we associate, like, I, I think we tend to associate bounding with building better sprinting but i know there are differences and i know there are people who just do struggle with that element who struggle with that element more than we would think it's a lot this the earlier you start the easier it is you know if you if you have a good coach when you're like 11 12 13 and you learn jumping and you have you know good technique it's a it's not it's pretty safe training method you know but if you struggle with the technique and you have bad impacts when when you land and you're a little bit heavy you have to be careful. I think you know the, yeah, a lot. A lot has to do with what he did in a, as a, a child. You know, it's uh, unfortunately kids stop playing too. You know, you used to be see a little, little bit more of hopscotch and skipping rope in this in the playgrounds than we do these days. You know, now they're immobilized by their iPads and computers. <laughs> they don't develop that uh, you know that capacity that is. Uh, Maybe the elasticity you develop as a as a you know as an early teenager that's something that you can benefit from the rest of your life. 
Yeah, I think those those kids. What is it? If you're sedentary, you have high the highest fast twitch muscle fiber. So maybe that's what they're working on. They're they're, they're trying to have oh, the yeah, highest yeah, percentage yeah, sure. of fast yeah. twitch fiber. <laughs> I think yeah, the the kids with the the shoes too. I feel like are a big thing. Like you know, no one people don't play barefoot. At least around you know here, I think people get put shoes on way too early and their feet don't get yeah. developed like they should either. Oh. Yeah, I uh, so I was going to ask you too. So with, uh, along the lines of bounding, uh, for those athletes you have who are pretty decent at it, I mean, do you have do you kind of have tests and benchmarks that you use, like a like standing triple jump or standing five that that is a big part of your program, or is it more just a really supplementary role? Well, I'm not a big test guy. We don't do a lot of tests, but I me- I like to measure everything I can measure. I measure. <laughs> <laughs> so every time we jump, more or less, except the beginning of the general preparation, we do a lot more, more low intensity. You know, we, we 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 test. You know, so we do a lot of. You know, we we measure and we do a lot of. You know, standing three, standing five, standing ten. We do. You know, vertical jumping, we can measure contact times with, you know, contact grids, stuff like that. You know, it's uh, good feedback for athletes, you know, it's, and uh, creates a little bit more competitive environment and uh, more higher intensity. And uh, uh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, competing in, in like not a little bit kind of off events, I guess you could say, or if it's not your... Uh, and jumping, especially too, I, I athletes always love competing with each other in those different uh, bounding and jumping tests. Or I, I've seen like the jumps decathlons and and the, those types of things, and people people love that stuff. Oh yeah, uh, awesome. Well, so uh, so you had mentioned it a little bit before, uh, but I'd like to so in terms of like general and maximal strength, but. Uh, what's your take on general versus specific strength for sprinters? So I mean, what can we really, in terms of uh, outside of, I guess, potentiation or those types of things, in the weight room, I mean, is there really much we can get out of the weight room from uh, a specific uh, perspective? And if so, how much can we expect? Well, it depends what you're talking about specificity. Of course, you can be muscle specific. You, you can target, you know, certain muscle groups that you you feel is important for sprinting, but in terms of of, of you know, coordination or you know uh, you know contraction types or angular velocity, and it has let, very little to do with maximum sprinting. Regardless of what you do, you know that's uh, it's very different, you know. And uh, but of course, uh, I mean you 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 can target uh, muscle groups. You can. You know, of course, you can. You know, maybe you can uh, assume that uh, uh, both recruitment and, uh, so to some extent, even discharge rate is. Uh, uh, you know, it is can be. You know, uh, you know, developed in the in the weight room, but you have to to realize it's it's, uh, it's very different. You know, both the the inter and the intramuscular co- co- uh, coordination is very different from from sprinting. And uh, if you do, uh, if you do, you know, coordination type of work, or if you're doing, you know, uh, neural neural training in the gym, I prefer to to stand on a stable stand, you know, that uh, don't wobble too much because it's. Um, uh, I feel that's more effective, you know, than to stand on booster bolts, you know, and lift, you know, to to you know lift a barbell of 20 kilos, you know, stuff like that. I don't don't believe much in. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I've seen you do movements where 
uh, you have doing like explosive squats from like a staggered position or things, uh, at least mimicking like the start. I, I think that uh, you, you tend to draw a lot of specificity revolving around the first few steps or like a block start. Well, if there are a transfer from maximum to strength to sprinting, it's maybe in the block and the first couple of strides. Mm -hmm. Uh, that can be specific, you know, but in, from then on, you know, in the 100 meter race, it's a, it's a very different story, you know. And uh, then the elasticity and stretch shortening is, is much more more important, you know, and the ability to yield, you know, in the, in the vertical sense, you know. And, the, and uh, like I said, maximum strength has a role, but uh, don't overemphasize it. And you have to respect there are. There are, you know, quite a number of, of very weak athletes that has cracked 10, you know, and I'm sure it's the same in, on the female side that has cracked 11, you know, with a very limited maximum strength capacity. But they don't don't be fooled. They're strong. Mm -hmm. They're very strong in the event, you know, but they're not strong in the gym. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you do, I've, in terms of like... Uh, like specialty muscles. I, do you do any hip flexor based work? I think that's something people tend to uh, ask about a lot is is hip flexor directed work for sprint athletes like in the gym in the weight room. Yeah, we, we do in the in the general prep, you know, we do, you know, you know, it's two things we develop, we, we develop hamstring, you know, you know, especially the eccentric part of the knee flexion. But also we work on the on the hip uh, hip flexions, uh, but also something that uh, is a is a fragile muscle, so to be be careful not to overdoing it. You know, it's uh, and uh, like everything, you know, the sprinting is probably probably the best uh, solution itself. You know, but uh, we do you know some you know we do you know decent loading you know kind of sit ups with the strapped feet. You know that the physios probably hate and. <laughs> we do a lot of you know skip time of move you know movements with you know ankle weight things like that you know uh, for hip hip flexions. Yeah, I, yeah, I do think uh, I one thing I've kind of considered a little bit more lately is it's not it's not terrible to have a set of abs. Like I think a lot of people, like you kind of alluded to, like shy away from you know abdominal training for the sake of uh, <laughs> connecting that area a little bit but I, I was talking with Mike Robertson not too long ago in a podcast and just kind of going into the, the PRI or postural restoration rabbit hole a little bit like having strong abs and strong hamstrings is is important and I think it's uh, yeah it's it's definitely abdominal work certainly does have some uh, some bit of a place and not only on the, the abs also the you know iliopsoas I was talking more about you know the and the rectus Femoris that are flexing the hip, you know, both, you know, we, we, I don't know if you saw that Japanese documentary where they did the MRI on, on Asafa Powell and the Japanese champion. Asafa had huge iliopsoas, you know, nice fillets. And I've seen some studies too, you know, of, uh, of some, uh, I think young, young, some Jamaicans, I think, or I, mean, I don't know, some young sprinters at least that, you know, had fairly well developed iliopsoas. Yeah, I, I did see that. And it was kind of making me think a little bit of what you uh, you had mentioned before, just sprinting. I mean, and those guys, I think those Jamaican guys do a lot of the, those like A runs too. And I mean, I, I don't, know, don't know if I could speak for Safa Powell in his camp there, but like just even doing uh, like high knee based work, not for maybe even technical development, but just more to develop that muscle group. And Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. You know, a lot of the drills people do is not to maybe to develop technique. It's more maybe for strength. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree for sure. I, I know my take is is a lot of those uh, like a skips and marching base drills are more for the the strength of the muscles than assisting uh, assisting sprinting. Yeah. Uh, so Olympic lifts too. I wanted to kind of get there. I, I think you use those a lot in your program. Is that uh, is that something that uh, like individually is is going to play a big role? And and uh, how do you implement them through, for those athletes that are doing a lot of that type of work? How are you implementing that throughout the year? Well, it's the same thing with us with with jumping. If you start early, it's much easier. You know, it's a more technical demanding than a lot of other stuff you do in the in the weight room. So. You have to make sure they have a sound, uh, sound technique. Even though in my 40 years in the gym, I had never seen an injury in the gym, you know. And uh, I, you know, I've been working with, with, you know, professional soccer teams too, you know. And sometimes they're scared of lifting anything heavier than an egg, mm-hmm. you know. And then you have the American footballers that you know spend uh, too much time in, in the gym, you know. But uh, uh, you know, it, it, you know, the the cons with with uh, with uh, Olympic lifting is that you involve a lot of muscle groups in one exercise, huh? so you, you save a lot of time, you know, and energy. You, know, you can do other things, you know. Uh, on the other side, it's uh, it's uh, it's a little bit technical demanding. So you have if you 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 come to a football team or you have a guy that is 28, 29, has never lifted a bar in his life, you know, but he's very strong, you know. Mm-hmm. Then you have to ask, you know, is it worth, you know, spending three years to t- teach him how to lift, you know, to do a clean you know, or a snatch, you know, it's a, it's not going to have any effect of the training before he retires, you know. But if you if you come from a, you know, a good background where you had a clever coach when you when you were a teenager that taught you the the technique, you know, it's a it's a it's good, and uh, I think mainly because it saves energy, you know, it's a. I don't know if it's more effective, you know, in the long term than you know the squatting and other stuff, you know. But uh, it involves a lot of, of muscle groups, and it's a, I think it's a great general strength uh, exercise. Those the hybrids or the, or the very few few track and field athletes that do the, the the Olympic lifting as such, you know, they usually develop you know hybrids that uh, is maybe easy to learn and serves the same purpose for us, you know. Yeah, I like what you said about the efficiency, and it's it's very easy to do a sprint workout and then just walk in the gym and hit a few sets of Olympic lifts, and it's uh, a pretty a pretty serious workout, and you don't have to do um, it. Definitely covers a lot of bases for sure. Yeah, yeah, but you know, like, like everything, you know, I think every sprint uh, community that are fairly successful in the in the in the world, the sprinting is the core, is the center, you know. And everything we do outside, it, it can help, and it can, but it can also be counterproductive if you, it takes too 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 much too much of a place, regardless if it's uh, lifting or plyometrics or whatever. You know, the sprinting has always has to be in the center. You know, that is what's really really important. Oh yeah, absolutely. I 
I completely agree with you from both my experience as a track coach and then a strength coach specifically for track and field. Uh, I, I'm in total agreement with that one. I've, I've just always been fascinated with how the different lifts and movements can interact and throughout the course of the year and for individual athletes. And, but I, I do think it's, it's crucial to always remember. And I've, I mean, I'm seeing it just even lately myself, just tweaking some things with my sprinting and, and incorporating some different running base movements. And I'll, I'll run faster than I have in the last, you know, 10 years. And my lifts aren't even that great right now. And I'm oh. like, you know, Okay, well, uh, but I mean, I I do uh, I do enjoy a lot of the movements and learning about them, but I yeah, it is always really when it comes down to is certainly about the track. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was going to ask you as well, and you had mentioned uh, you had mentioned you uh, the hamstrings and and seminars, and uh, you you touched on it a little bit before with the eccentric training, but just in terms of uh, general and, and program view on the hamstrings injury prevention. Uh, related strength training. How do you how do you approach and manage the the hamstrings and the health and strength of them throughout the year? When when I was a sprinter in the end of the seventies and also when I started coaching in the eighties, you know, we we treated hamstring a lot like a knee flexor. You know, we everyone did knee you know knee you know leg curls. You know, and uh, when I when I was a sprinter, we we didn't have any indoor facilities. You know, so. And my first couple of seasons, I had, you know, had the big issues with my hamstring. So I even bought myself my old leg curl <laughs> machine, you know, and developed a very nice, you know, uh, hamstring. And I, but we couldn't sprint uh, indoor. We could only run outside in the snow in the winter. <laughs> so we did a lot of, you know, interval work in the 70 to 80, maybe 85 percent range outside, more or less, for five six months. And I remember we went to a training camp in Yugoslavia in the end of April, you know, and after the first session of sprinting, I couldn't walk because my hamstring was so sore. So I started to understand the specificity, you know, the, the most important hamstring training is the sprinting itself and upright, you know, at, at a high velocity. But also you have to consider that the hamstring are a very strong, you know, hip extender. So treat it more like a hip extender. And in the run, running right cycle, you know, the only part of the, the, the cycle where there's no activity in the hamstring is when the, when the, when the foot is kicking up to the butt, you know. And, uh, but, uh, you know, apart from that, you know, it's, it has a great activity, especially when the, when the, the hamstring is uh, blocking the, the foot pendulum movement forward, you know. It's high stress. And I think most, is, uh, it seems to be a consensus that it's the most... Uh, uh, you know, where most injuries happen, you know. So uh, we, we start to work more with, with eccentric, you know. Treat the hamstring as a knee extensor, but also as a knee flexor, but eccentrically. And I think, you know, per test machine, the yo-yo machine there in the, in the 90s was a game changer for us, you know, because we had had very, very few serious hamstring injuries in, my, in, the, in the last 20, 25 years when we started working like more like this you know and it's very sad to see like in some professional ball sports is it seems to be a plague you know it's costing billions every year you know the hamstring injuries you know in the they done, done excess excessive studies in the premier league in england you know how many injuries they have and it's getting more and more all, all the time and of course you can blame the the game planning, they play too many games, not enough recovery, maybe they don't sprint, you know, technique is bad, you know, and uh, because that's also a very 
uh, you know, crucial thing, you know, technique, you know, for, you know, preventing hamstring injuries. But uh, uh, I think it has something to do with how they prepare the, or prepare, you know, uh, prepare how they work in the gym, you know, when, when it comes to hamstring, you know, they, they don't seem to do a good job. Yeah. What do you think about, um, like inertial training compared to doing like Nordic hamstring based work or like the, the razor curl where it's kind of like the Nordic hamstring and your, your torso is parallel to the floor and you're kind of extending out. Like what are some, uh, are they, do you use like a progression of Nordics in addition to, uh, looking at the inertial work? I mean, I have some guys that can go up and down, you know, that's they're immensely strong, you know, but more, if you have a beginner, you know, that they can't do a Nordic hamstring curl, they, they 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 flat they fall flat on their face because before they get any significant mm-hmm. ex- you know extension or tension of the muscle you know so you have to start somewhere you can't start with that you know and uh, because you don't you don't uh, you don't develop tension in the area where wherever you need it you know <laughs> at the at the you know little greater angles of, of the of the knee joint you know so I, I like that exercise too but. Everything you know has to do with eccentric training is very very potent, and you know that it's uh, probably breaking down you know muscle tissue to an extent. You know it's uh, very very demanding, so you can't do those kind of, of training when you're sprinting fast. You know, so when in terms of periodizing, I think we per- you know, when it comes to eccentric training for hamstring, we do it in the beginning of the general preparation period when we don't do so much fast sprinting in an upright position. Just to be, you know, be on the safe side, you know, because if you incorporate too much of that work, you know, when, when you're sprinting, uh, you know, big volumes in at high velocity, you, you're at risk. Yeah, that's a, that'd be a lot of stress to happen all at one time. I that's a mistake I made early on as a coach too, is just kind of having every athlete do the Nordic hamstrings. And some athletes were great. Yeah, they could go, they touch their nose to the floor and be fine. Like, and other athletes couldn't barely get down at all, and probably weren't getting much of a stimulus from it. And uh, so, you, do you do uh, like do you start those weaker athletes off with uh, like assisted versions or with like a band or like uh, bending their torso forward or, or different things like that to move them? Or do you have a progression to get them there? Yeah, you know, but we we also have the you know the like the leg you know, the eccentric leg curl machine that yeah. you know that we, we use for beginners. But you can use your hands too and create eccentric overload as a coach. You know, you can you know do a one-legged uh, hamstring curl and, and uh, you can create a lot of, of eccentric resistance, you know, uh, you know, just uh, pushing down, you know, so you don't need ex- maybe sometimes expensive machines, but uh, you can be creative and, and, and do other other exercises too. Oh, yeah. And you, like you said, you can use bands and stuff like that, you know, too, for, for you know, m- making it a little easier, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. That was that was the first thing I kind of went to is uh, throwing throwing bands on and trying to angle them angle them the right way and 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 get people kind of so they could they could eventually get all the way down. I know there's that there's a really cool app out right now. It's like really simple. It's just like two bucks and kind of measures the angle that people can go before they just like totally lose control of it and uh, and fall forward. I think it's you know one of the of of uh, P J Moran's colleagues. You know, P Moran by the way is doing excellent work you know for you know our understanding of sprinting you know I, i'm really happy to have met him and uh, 
really appreciate him and and Wayans work too you know our level of understanding in in sprinting has uh, tenfold <laughs> in the in the last couple of years much thanks to them you know oh yeah they've been doing awesome stuff and well, well, speaking of some of the work they've been doing, and you know, I've been I've been kind of like hammering out these all these weightlifting and and supplementary to sprinting questions, but uh, I like to kind of shift then into uh, more like the that specific strength. So, resisted sprinting, assisted sprinting. Uh, what's your take on like like integrating those things into the training program? How do you use resisted and overspeed those types of modalities throughout the year? Well, well, when we start training in beginning of October, it's still fall, you know. So we we start, you know, I believe in in uh, in horizontal loading, of course. So we do a lot, of, we do hill sprinting then, you know. But gradually we have to move in. We don't have any hills anymore, so we start using sleds. And we are no exception to anyone else in the world. I think mo- most sprint coaches in the world use some kind of, of resistant acceleration, and we we start with you know fairly heavy loading at the beginning and. Eventually, we, you know, we, 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 you know, you know, do it lighter and lighter, you know. But we, we, we keep some kind of resistance all the way to the specific uh, preparation period. Uh, it's, uh, I like that. And uh, in terms of vertical loading, you know, we, of course, we use, you know, plyometrics as a general, general mean. But we also do with weighted vest, you know, you can use it. Uh, both in the in general prep, you know, it, you know, you use it when you maybe you're doing, you know, some kind of drills, but you also can, you know, do a little bit lighter loading at a at specific preparation you know, phase when, uh, you know, for more more specific work, you know, and at maybe a lighter load. So we've been using uh, re- sleds and maybe using, you know, vests, you know, for all my career since the since the eighties, you know. Uh, with the with some of the heavier stuff you're doing in the sleds in the early training period, is, are you going to the point where I think the I think the number with the JB Marin and Sam Mazzino was a it's about like a fifty percent decrement in velocity for that the true heavy heavy sled. Uh, are you guys going Are you guys going to that level, uh, or is it it just individualized, or uh, can you go a little bit more detail on some of that to, some of the weight, like how heavy you guys are going, and if you're doing some of or doing any data behind it if you i mean if you measure the velocity you know with a you know, laser or something you see at already at step number two the velocity horizontal velocity of the sprinter is 50 percent close to 50 percent of maximum velocity and if you load them heavily uh, you can maintain that velocity for a longer period of time so of course, at at some point, it is a, you know specific strength development, but I also see it as a technical mean. Uh, with resistance, uh, heavy resistance like that, you can you can work on your first couple of strides, you know, for up to maybe 20 meters. You know, you get a lot of more specific uh, technical work that than if you're doing a you know two two times three times 30 meter block starts. You know, so it it has a I think you know heavy resistance has a place as uh, you know for you know for for strength development, but uh, for me it's mainly a technical thing. It gives people more time to think about what they're doing and, and you know planting correctly and so on. If you take off a little of the load, you can work yourself through the whole acceleration phase, you know, with, with lighter and lighter resistance, you know, and see it as not only as a 
specific strength mean, but also as a as a technical, uh, you know, technical modality. Yeah, I I agree. I the what uh, J. B. Marin calls like the decrease in uh, the degree decrease in ratio of force, being able to apply horizontal force a little bit longer into the run, uh, in the, the associated technique. And you know, the first the maximum force is uh, is the first step, you know, and the maximum power output is within the first half a second, you know. So, so you have to consider that too, you know. It's uh, produce maximum force. You should only move out of the block. <laughs> You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Do you do uh do you do any work with overspeed training? I think that's always something I I'd like to get the opinion of for different sprint coaches. I you know every sprinter enjoy running in tailwind, right? Uh, if you you've trained sprint in the summer, you always run uh, you know with the wind, you know, and uh, you know you can run at a higher velocity, you can relax better, you can work with better technique. But for us, you know, we we indoor from October to May. We don't have any wind, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so in the beginning of of of, of, of the nineties, we started experimenting with towing, you know. And uh, we used to have a leverage system in my hall that we hang. Our hall was twenty five meter high, so we had a falling weight. So we had a leverage system, uh, you know. So it was a leverage time four. So if the if the weight fell uh, twenty five meters, it could pull the sprinter, you know, uh, for a hundred. And and uh, you know you can also always trust uh, you know the gravity, but the problem that that people couldn't leave it alone and was messing up all the time. So we 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 contact a technician. So he built us a machine you know that uh, we've been using for a long long time that you 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 can tow the sprinters. And but we 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 don't do it much for overspeed, but we do it for assistance. So we don't pull we we very hard force. We pay maybe. Between uh, 1.5 kilo pound to maybe maximum 2.5 kilo pound, so it just assists a little bit, and um, so we've been using that a, a long, long time. And you know, you know, so I, I, I'm a believer in 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 assisted sprinting, but I'm a bit more scared of of super maximum sprinting. It um, you have to make sure that the sprinter has very, very good technique, you know, and uh, you, it's it's a it's a bigger it's a risky business. Yeah. So in some ways, you're you're just using it to allow an athlete to sprint very fast at maybe a a 97 percent effort. So like they don't have to try quite as hard to run at their maximal velocity and work on technique a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's an interesting, a really interesting approach. I was actually just talking with uh, Cal Dietz about Hank Krayenhoff and that exact concept and. Yeah, I, I think that's a uh, that's a lot of people just want to see overspeed and just go as fast you know as fast as they reasonably can without <laughs> without the sprinter try- throwing on the brakes too much. But I yeah. think that that's more of a finesse of the essence based concept there. I, I've seen some unbelievable things where people <laughs> are be, being pulled, you know, at crazy speeds with you know I, I can't I can't even watch because I think oh God, that great athlete, how can he take that risk? You know, that's um, oh. Yeah, I, I was thinking uh, I was actually I was just at a seminar and I was uh, talking with a few coaches and talking with one of the reps of uh, the 1080 sprint. And I was thinking how much fun it would be just to go to the street one day and have like a Usain, you could call it the Usain Bolt challenge 
and you just dial it up to 12 meters a second and just see <laughs> people go down the street and see who can do it. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the orthopedic surgeons, you know, they would be really amused. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, wonder what, I wonder what mechanics you might see. They could, they could, yeah. The biomechanists could all assess the survival, survival method, mechanisms of people who, who yeah, would have yeah, to put, exactly. up, put up with that. Um, yeah. but, but, uh, yeah, I, I overspeed is definitely intriguing to me and I, I, I really, um, yeah, using it in that way, I think is really, really cool too. And I, I think that, um, uh, when you, when, when you do utilize that type of work, I mean, how, how often is, is that, uh, put into the program throughout the year? Uh, and we start, you know, at the end of the specific uh, preparation period, maybe when when the strength and power development is uh, you know, over and, uh, you know, you don't uh, feel that you need to develop, uh, you know, your, your plyometric ability anymore, then it's a lot extra ice on the cake in that you start to reduce the, you reduce the amount of not specific training and you introduce this and you, you, you I mean, uh, you already built up, you know, the tolerance to to you know, to sprint at you know big volumes, but gradually you 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 start to to run faster, and this is a way you're getting a little bit more volume in the high intensity zone. Yeah, yeah, it's a little, it's a little bit a um, little bit neurally easier, I guess. Probably doesn't cause you're not probably at high risk of um, an athlete getting a little bit burned out and crashing their dopamine out or stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, going into going beyond the training means a little bit and into just like some of the ways to set things up and uh, maybe uh, maybe in terms of like, uh, you know, the special strength period, you're just getting ready for the competitive season. Can you take me inside a weekly training setup? Like what is your what is your for like a higher level athlete? Maybe what does that tend to look like when you break that down? We usually sprint uh, three days per microcycle. And, but the microcycle it varies, you know, in the general preparation, we, we usually follow the week. So sprint uh, three days and seven days. But then when the high intensity gets uh, higher in the specific preparation phase, you know, up to, especially in an upright position, we, we tend, I tend to stretch it out to nine to ten days. So we, in, in, in special pre- end of special preparation period, our microcycle are usually... 10 days so sprint 10 days in in uh, sprint uh, three days in 10 days and uh, i would say that we emphasize you know like uh, usually have one uh, one one session that emphasize acceleration one session that emphasize upright uh, maximum velocity and one one session more more in sp- speed endurance type of work uh, in the preparation periods but when you come to the end of the specific preparation period is more of a mix then you i mean you you I mean you you do almost all qualities in in one session oh that's interesting yeah so as you you kind of have it more broken up in the in the early periods and then once you get more towards competition you're starting to uh, put some of those workouts together yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah but uh, you know have to be careful with with the density it's not only intensity and volume it's the density is very very important too you know to the faster you sprint the more recovery you need in between yeah what are what are your volumes looking like for some of your sprint training days like you like in the setup where you have the acceleration and top end and the speed endurance days uh for like your 100 200 guys what what are some of those sprint volumes looking like 
Well, I think it it varies a lot, you know, according to what what kind of of sprinter you have, you know. I you know, I, I had the privilege to call Johan Wismaner for at in the last couple of years of his career. He's a he's been an Olympic and world champion final in the in the 400 meter, you know. He's a he's a different breed in that aspect, aspect you know. And, uh, uh, he could tolerate a lot of higher volume with, with less recovery, you know, because he has a, uh, you know, he has that capacity, you know. But uh, then I have another couple of guys are very fast twitch, very neural, you know. They, they, uh, they, they can run high volumes, but they need more rest. So it depends. Uh, all depends on the athlete, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Especially learning a little bit more about like the different. Yeah, neurotypes, athletes who are more wired and neural and those who are more muscular. It really does. Uh, it also explains a little bit more, at least uh, in a way that can make sense in a way that an athlete might tolerate one type of workout or one, one density. A dip- yeah, I like how you said density, like one type of density more than another. I, th- I think in a hundred meter, in, in a, on a world level, everyone is more or less neural driven. You know, yeah, they, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you see some that might be a little bit more elastic than others, you know, and some are maybe a little bit more stiff than other in the kinematics. And, uh, you know, it's probably a lot of these things we don't understand, you know, about the elasticity of the of the elastic, you know, proteins, you know, that uh, we don't fully understand, you know, that uh, uh, seems to be different types, you know. But I think, you know, I think... Uh, in, in on a world world level, you know, probably everyone has you know around seventy percent of fast with fibers. What what varies might be that you know some people has more two X than others, you know, and that uh, probably those kind of guys that have more two A are more suitable for speed endurance orientated programs or and higher loads of endurance training, and they can tolerate more volume and less recovery, you know. So. So, in a sense, they're both, you know, they're they all neural driven, you know, but it might be a difference on on the on a on the molecular level uh, as well. No? Yeah, yeah, that's I've heard that two A. I think it was Ryan Banta who was talking a little about the two A type sprinter. The uh, talking about someone who might yeah do a little bit more of that muscular muscular might thrive a little bit more off of a muscular endurance paradigm in some training sessions. I was going to ask you, so you, you with those days in the microcycle. Uh, what are you doing on the off days? Do you do tempo? Do you do like circuit type training or different types of recovery modalities? How do you approach those days? Uh, you know, we, we usually do one one day of, of speed, one day of strength, and one day of, of general training. And then, uh, you know, we do we do we do you know running a little bit of low intensity. If you feel like you're a bit too tight in your legs, you can go in the pool and run in the pool. And but in the last uh, Half a year or so, we've been doing more work on the on the woodway curve. These unmotorized treadmills that the guys seem to really enjoy. You know, they get a more uh, natural movement. You know, than running 70% on 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 the flat ground. They got more of a sprinting mo- motion. You know, that they, they it feels more right for them. You know, running 70% on on the on those curved treadmills. You know, and because we have a limited hole, we have a 135 meters straight, and we don't have a, you know, we can't really run in it longer tempo runs in there, you know. So we, we you know, rather being out in the snow, we've been doing a bit of work on on treadmills. So. 
Okay. I and I I know notice you said there that you do uh you'll do the strength day after the speed workout. So in a in a 10-day microcycle you'll kind of have three uh speed days and then three strength days that are uh right after that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I that's interesting to me. I, I cuz I this is something I've actually been thinking about a lot is the idea of uh, if if you're a neural type, you do want to stimulate the nervous system a little more often, uh, maybe even more so. I know the the Charlie Francis model was you hit it really hard neurally and then totally rest the nervous system the next day and then hit it hard again. And I, I know personally for me and a lot of athletes I've coached, I've had good success doing a, a sprint, uh, a sprint lift, a sprint one day lift the next, or vice versa type paradigm. And is is that something that you've done for some time? And and uh, I feel like you get that effect on the athletes, like you want to keep their nervous system kind of running hot, so to speak. Well, you know, when in general preparation, you know, you, you do a lot of everything, you know, so you get so bloody tired if you're going to have do, you know, both sprinting and lifting in one day, you know, because the volumes are so high, you know, so you're dead, dead after, the, mm-hmm. after the first day, you know, but when you come close to the competition, you know, season you know, in a special specific preparation. Then we can do you know t- double sessions. You know, because we the volumes are a lot, uh, lot less, uh, and uh, so then we can do you know we do two sessions a day sometimes too. You know, especially maybe when we do acceleration, we can do a bit of lifting in the afternoon and jumping. But when it comes to upright, what we call lactic anaerobic training, we do high volumes of. Of shorter sprints, you know. Then uh, after that session, you're 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 too di- too tired, you know, to do anything fruitful the same day in the afternoon. So, and I don't want to do it the other way around because I I'd like to sprint before before we 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 do weight weight training in the gym. Oh yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense to me. Uh, well, that's that's interesting. Uh, and then once you get in the competitive season uh, and you're you're competing, how does it how does it change once you're there? I mean, then you can you do a bit, bit of you know sprinting because the volume is so low. And maybe you end up with a bit of lifting, and in that period we don't do a lot of plyometric seating. You know? So you just go in, you know, to you know do a couple of lifts, you know, to to maintain the you know the maximum strength, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's uh, and then then by then you're probably like super low volume, like you mentioned before, like just just a couple sets of uh, of low yeah, reps. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and preferably some exercise that involves a lot of muscle groups. So. Oh yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, well, awesome. Uh, well, my my last question for you is, uh, I guess, what's your take? And you mentioned in the general phase, I asked you a question about the specific, but uh, what's your take on like? The, I, I guess people call it like we're building a base, you know, like uh, what's your take on the base? And then also I'll, I'll infuse a kind of a, fir, a, a earlier question that I didn't get to in there. But in that base or the beginning phase, you, you talk about uh, like strengths and weaknesses. Is that is that an area where there's like, you, you know, certain weaknesses you're kind of trying to address? Uh, what does that phase kind of look like for your group? When it, when it comes to weaknesses versus strengths, you know, if you take a, take a sport like 100 meter sprinting, you know, the demands are so clear, you know, uh, in the 100 meters, more, more or less perfect correlation between top speed and end result. You know, we shouldn't be surprised that the fastest person wins 100 meter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but in, in, you know, in some team sports and other sports, you know, the. Uh, you, I mean, you can emphasize maybe acceleration. You can emphasize speed endurance. But for in a hundred meters, if you want to go anywhere, you know, you have to develop 
maximum speed regardless if your strengths or weaknesses because the 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 demands are super clear you know it's uh, you can't escape from that you know but uh, and if you talk about you know what you do in training when you when you start you you would you would like to be specific all year round to develop your your maximum velocity but it's uh, to be, you know, to have a competitive season, you know, for maybe three or four months, is a lot of wear and tear. Uh, and most people are very, they're very, very tired. You know, they need to recover. You know, and just, you know, just to continue developing maximum sprints wouldn't be very, <laughs> wouldn't be very smart. You know, so we do some kind of base training, you know, for about four weeks, and we're out in the woods, you know, we're, you know, stuff like that before the real training starts. You know. But I, I don't think it, it gives any kind of base, you know, for for sprinting. It's so different, you know. But it's something, uh, you know, it, it feels more sound to do it, you know, than to just ju- jump on a specific bandwagon right away. Uh, but uh, if you talk about, you know, a lot of people talk about work capacity. I don't think aerobic training is going to give you any work, you know, capacity for sprinting. Yeah, it's, you have to be more specific in, in that sense to develop work capacity. Work capacity for in sprinting for me is, is to, you know, to be able to tolerate you know higher and higher loads at a higher intensity. That's more work capacity. I agree. I like you said uh, you get getting on the woods. I feel like all the training videos, uh, whether old or new, from like kind of your neck of the woods or or maybe Poland or like there's there's you know, always training out in the woods or, or, or it's like snowing or something like the Polish weightlifters in the snow or, but, uh, I feel like there's always like the, the nature, that nature aspect seems to be always like an off season element from the videos I see. It's good for the mind too. You know, I, I mean, we inside so much, you know, it's good to be out in the, in the nature. I think it's good for, for, for humans, you know, <laughs> and sprinters, you don't go out and cross country ski a lot, you know, they drive their car, you know, as close as the entrance to the hall as possible. You know? <laughs> they, they'd never go for a walk and never outside, you know, so take the opportunity in, in especially in the fall when it's nice. It's, uh, you know, we, we do a lot of, you know, sand, uh, hill training, stuff like that in, in October, you know, and the, it's become kind of a tradition that uh, I don't think the athletes would like to break. You know, we've done it for so many years, and they enjoy it starting like that. You can start with low impact the plyometrics in the woods. You know, you can do a lot of things. You know, so that is not so stressful. You know, that. Uh, uh, but if it's a base to to maximum sprinting, I can be questionable. But it's a, at least it's a it's a good foundation for your for your mental health. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's so much like variability and. In- the, the way that doing things in nature is a little bit different or even even running up a sand hill every run is gonna be a lot a little bit different based off where your foot hits in the sand and and oh uh, yeah well uh that's uh that's all i got for uh you today hawken but uh but thank you so much i i appreciate you taking the time and all your answers and just kind of learning that insight into what goes on in a, a world-class uh sprint program and what you've put together and so thank you for your time i, I learned an awful lot and then really enjoyed talking to you Thanks a lot. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Doing a great job. Thanks again. Well, chalk one up in the books for another episode of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I hope you got a lot of great speed training ideas out of that. 
I really liked listening to him particularly talk about the training setups at the end. I've just been thinking about those types of things. Well, I'm always thinking about training setups, but man, Hawkins has gotten some awesome results. I love talking to him and uh, coaches who have just such a mind for speed. So we will be back next week with another great guest. We'll have Cal Dietz on for his second appearance on the podcast. So looking forward to bringing you that one. In the meantime, visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, K-Box, Gym Aware, Force Plates, PowerDot, you name it. They have the best of in the tech for sports performance industry. We'll see you guys next week.